The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for the fact that's behind the songs we were just singing. Particularly there at the very end, you rescued us by your great love. That's true. Thank you. You're God who has loved us in eternity past and has loved us in the present and will love us all the way into eternity future. You are, you are so very gracious and kind to us. And in love, you've saved us. And so we are your people and we sit before you thankful and also then bold enough, invited, bold enough to ask you, will you now do still more? Will you teach us? Will you grow us up? Will you shape us? Conform us to your image, shape our minds and our hearts and our lives, and use this passage and the book that's before us to do that. So give guidance to our words here this morning and to our listening this morning, and build up your people, those whom you love. Love us still more. Thank you, Lord. We we trust you with this and look to you now to be guide. Thank you. Amen. Within the Christian community, there have always been many songs and sayings about how this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. You hear that in songs, and, and we heard it even this morning in, as, as Pastor Bryant prayed. He used many of the same, same words that I've thought of here this morning. We sometimes colorfully call ourselves aliens and strangers in the world. And we invoke the words of the book of Hebrews and talk about how here we have no lasting city, but there's, there's a city that's to come with you know, streets paved with gold, mansions in heaven. And we use the word sojourn or sojourners, uh, sometimes to entitle different ministries. Even some of our churches have that name in their titles. And all of that is useful and good, very helpful to us. In the America that most of us have experienced to date, it can be a great help to keep us from being kind of sucked in and to become enamored or too enamored with this world that's just passing away or the one that we're passing away from. It kind of reminds us, don't live for this place. This isn't your home. Store up treasures in heaven where we're going. And we talk about the true home and the life that's to come and we use it often as a, as a help, as a buffer for pain when we face some sort of a a health loss or the loss of a loved one or something like that. Yes, we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope because we know there is more to come. There is another place that is going to come. There is a life still in front of us. That is all good and helpful. However, I do think that sometimes it misses something. Something which many observers suspect we are starting to discover in the changing America of the last few years. I know there are some here in this room who are, who are gonna say kinda of like, well yeah, duh, I've known that in other places in the world for a long time now, but you're right, you guys are now starting to figure it out, starting to get something here, to feel it more acutely and maybe become more familiar with increasingly so in the future. 
This language that we use here, the you know, aliens and strangers, no lasting city, sojourner, etc., those are all biblical terms. They're good and right to use. But it's worth noting that in the biblical context, most often, not always, most often the context there is one about a hard life, one about ostracism. Often the context is about the people of God living in a foreign land among people who do not understand you, who do not like you, who are openly prejudiced against you and barely tolerate your presence as they let you live. That's the usual context in the Bible of these kinds of terms. And I'm, I'm looking out here and I, and I see a few people here and there who know, yep, that's, that's my family history in another country. And it's not that way yet quite for us here, but maybe we're becoming a little more acquainted with it. These terms aren't used primarily to remind Bible, leaders, Bible readers to not fall in love with the beautiful world all around them. They're used to point out and explain an obvious problem in the world all around them, to give definition to it, to help them live with that problem, and to point out the only solution to the problem, not to fix the world. The problem is only answered when we go home to the city that is lasting, whose architect and builder is God. There's a really different bent there. We have often in America, I think to this point, used it, and used it well and appropriately, used that kind of that package of terminology to keep us from loving this world. But maybe we need to think about also how it can help us deal with this world. And that's where the book of 1 Peter comes in. A short book, really a letter, of course, written by the Apostle Peter, verse 1 tells us. He's an apostle. We've seen this often in, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. The, the biggest, the first, most important criteria to be an apostle is to be an eyewitness of the Lord. Peter was an eyewitness of the Lord. He is therefore then Jesus' messenger to us. And the word that he brings us is authoritative. It's binding. It's the word of God. We know Peter, quite familiar with him. He is very well represented in the Gospels, of course, and in the beginning of the book of Acts. However, as Acts kind of begins to narrow in and focus as it goes on uh, onto one particular ministry, the ministry of Paul, and kind of the rest of what's going on in the church, you know, there's a whole lot more going on in the church, of course. It's kind of like left off to the side and not really discussed. And so Peter, for the most part, is absent. And for about 15 years, we really don't have many touch points with Peter. Here and there, yes, but not much. He's mostly out of sight until this letter, probably written in the early to mid-60s A.D. Can't really be sure because there's no date given with it. Probably around then. Written from Rome, called Babylon. Uses a code word for that in chapter 5. And he calls it Babylon because Babylon was always the great and evil, the, the destroyer par excellence of the people of God. And so that became kind of code. You know, of course, know this seeing it in the book of Revelation, code for all of the great and evil destroyers of the people of God. And that term here, used by Peter, tells us his context and tells us what we need to know about this book. Peter himself lives in Babylon. 
And he's writing to people who also live in Babylon amongst the great destroyer of the people of God. And he's going to write as he sees trouble and sees trouble increasing in the future. He's going to write to help his people, his readers, deal with that trouble in a sober but hope-filled and Christ-honoring way. Sober but hope-filled and Christ-honoring way because the truths of the gospel are still the truths of the gospel. So it's not sober and destroyed and distressed and crushed. It's sober and hope-filled and Christ-honoring. That's where this letter is going. Let me begin it this morning by reading verses 1 and 2, the introduction. And then I'll make a couple of observations from that. Like most letters, it has a, the standard introduction from, to, and then a greeting. But it's, again, like all Christian letters, that standard introduction kind of turn for Christian purposes, which I think we'll pull out as we observe two things. First, let me read it. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We'll stop there this morning. I'll make two observations from this. Here's the first. The Christian's identity and standing in the world is created in our election by the triune God. It's long, let me say it kind of in some pieces here. The Christian's identity and standing here in the world, our identity and standing is created in our election by the triune God. Now, different translations kind of render these words in slightly different order to kind of make English sentences out of them. But as I read it, verses 1 and 2, we find the introduction. We have the, the from and the to. And if you just look at word count, you notice where the emphasis falls. Peter has a lot to say about his audience, who he's writing this letter to. Mostly filled in there at the end of 1 and the beginning of verse 2. He's writing to people and explaining our identity and our standing. We are those who are elect exiles. Those words are initially, in the original language, they're like right there, paired up, back to back. Elect exiles. And the rest of verse 1 talks about the exiles, elaborates on that. We'll come to that in a second point. Well, we are going to start with verse 2, elaborating on the word elect. That word elect is a shorthand term to describe Christians, often used that way. And it's, it's all over the Bible, in kind of different forms. We heard it prayed this morning. It, it's in Ephesians 1 as chose, often chosen, choosing. It, it's different ways it's rendered in English, but it's all the same idea because that's at the core of election is the idea of, of being chosen or the idea of choosing, selecting someone or something. And so the elect are those chosen. Christians are the elect of God chosen by the joint working 
of all three members of the one triune God. That's what we see in verse 2. The whole process that the triune God all together works out to elect a person to be a Christian. And as a, a brief side note here, let me once again make a comment that I made last week. Here again is the doctrine of the Trinity. In the Bible, as it usually is, just kind of put in there, not as the main point, but as a side point, as kind of the underlying background to it, we have the three-in-one nature of God, each member of the Trinity presented, distinct from the others, each doing something powerful and divine on people, but each of them doing something powerful and divine on people in a united way, all as part of a single plan, operating together as a single unit because they are one. They have one mind, the mind of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Christians are elect first according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it says. So these Christians in all these different places that Peter's writing, and any Christian today, each of us, if you're a Christian, you can say, I am a Christian, I was chosen on the basis of God's foreknowledge. My election is based upon the foreknowledge of God. Which means what? We've got to stop almost immediately and be very careful as we walk through this because commonly a, a mistake is made right away in trying to understand what that phrase, according to foreknowledge, means. So we're going to have to be kind of careful and accurate here as we're going to look at some details. So you try to follow me on this. I'll try to be clear about this. This foreknowledge of God is not about God beforehand, before the foundation of the world, kind of looking down through the corridors of time at, at all the people down through history, checking out all of them to see who it is who would trust Jesus when it came time for that person, came to that person's life, who would and who wouldn't, looking down through the corridors of time and then kind of winding back, knowing that, winding back and then choosing those ones who would choose. Probably heard that explanation, it's pretty common. And it makes some sense if you think about four beforehand, foreknowledge. You can kind of see that, where that comes from. However, there are at least two reasons that that's not accurate. One theological, one linguistic. There are actually a number of reasons, but just to kind of keep it simple, I'm going to try to just look at two of them and try to be a little bit concise here. Theologically, this way of looking at things, of God kind of looking down through the quarters of time and then kind of winding back, it contradicts numerous core teachings about the gospel and about salvation itself. If you think about what's going on in that idea, God is looking around to see who would, you know, in and of himself or herself, by him or herself, would choose Christ. Who would it be? He's looking ahead. But that's a huge problem. 
Because the Bible repeatedly, often and everywhere says, the answer to that question is nobody would choose Christ in and of himself, in and of herself. The Bible's repeated analysis of all of us is that we are all dead in sin, we are all blind to the glory of God, we are all deaf to his voice, we are slaves, we are bound, we are unable and unwilling. That's the language of Romans 8. Unable and unwilling to please God, to turn to him, to choose him in and of ourselves. Until God acts to set us free, to open our eyes and our ears, there isn't anybody anywhere ever who would choose him. We are fallen in sin. So if God was to look ahead and look, he would find nobody. He would, in fact, find us all scattering and running from him. But if for a second we were to think that possible, that suppose it wasn't that way, suppose there were some who would choose, we immediately bump into another gigantic problem. Because if God were to look ahead and see that I would choose and then wind back and choose me, I end up chosen because I would choose. And that guy ends up not chosen because he would not choose. So who gets the credit for that? Me. The decisive reason I'm chosen and he's not is because of me. And the Bible repeatedly again says, there is nothing in salvation that is at all about me, nothing I can take credit for, nothing I can boast in. It is all of grace and mercy from beginning to end. Nothing in me makes me saved. Theologically, foreknowledge cannot be about God looking ahead to see who would choose and then winding back and choosing that person. And linguistically, the language itself also points us in a very different direction. Foreknowledge of God is not a word that's simply about God knowing things beforehand. Of course, God knows all things beforehand. That's what omniscience is. This is a particular piece of his omniscience, a subset of that, a piece of him knowing not just things, but people, knowing people relationally and deciding to do something with or in or on that person or those people. Choosing to relationally know and therefore interact with them. We can hear this, for instance, when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, the great Pentecost sermon. And he speaks of Jesus and says, Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus, known from eternity past, known as the sacrifice, God knew him relationally, knew him as the sacrifice, and then presented him, which is exactly the wording of verse 20 in 1 Peter 1, our chapter. Peter talks about Jesus there, we'll see it in the coming weeks, as a lamb without blemish who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times. None of that is about God looking down through the quarters of time to see how Jesus would react when it came time for the cross, seeing he would choose the cross and then winding it back to decide to make him the sacrifice. That's not what's going on. It can't be what's going on. The word foreknowledge is about God knowing him beforehand and deciding to use him and then acting through him in history. 
relationally knowing Jesus and then deciding to use him. So when Peter says about us that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, get this about you. This is, this is you, Christian. He means that in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God the Father thought of you. And God the Father decided to pick you. Not because of anything you had done or would do, not because of anything in you at all, but despite all of that, knowing it and setting it aside, decided to pick you anyway, deciding then to relate to you and engage with you in a wide-reaching plan, wide-reaching plan that you did not volunteer for and would not have volunteered for if you'd been alive when it was made up and had been asked about it. This is a deeply loving, gracious, merciful, glorious, wise God making a plan for you. And we each have nothing to boast of in that. It is the most humbling of all doctrines. It had nothing to do with us. But because he is gracious and merciful, he chose you. He decided beforehand to know you. You are a Christian on the basis of God the Father's foreknowledge. And, second phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit. That is, by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. Which again, like last week I should mention, the traditional Father-Son-Spirit order, it's changed here again. Father-Spirit-Son. Because of what the Spirit does that enables what we find in Jesus here in a moment. Spirit, mentioned second. On the basis of sanctification. Now, the basic meaning behind sanctification is to set aside something from the ordinary to make it special. Make it other, unique. And most often we, Christians, we think of sanctification as a process, a continual growing of a Christian into more and more Christ-like holiness, like increasingly setting us aside from the world and making us increasingly more like Christ. And that's certainly true. Sanctification, that's fair to describe it that way. That's what it is. But sanctification, this setting aside, can also be a one-time thing. Like when, for instance, priests were sanctified, set aside, called out from amongst the ordinary people to be made special servants of God, sanctified to him. That's also a fair way of describing our salvation then, being called out from the world once at a point in time to be made belonging to him. And that's describing what the Spirit is doing here as he calls us out from the world, sets us aside from the world, and stands us before Christ and opens our eyes to him, opens our hearts to him, 
so that we can see what's going on, so that we can understand the world and ourselves, so that we can see our problem in sin and see what's offered at the cross and what that would mean. The Spirit sanctifies us to God, calls us to Him out of the world. That's what the Spirit is doing. That's the next necessary step in this election, this one unified plan of election. God didn't just beforehand know us in his mind. He actually knew us in the Spirit's work of sanctification. It's part of the plan. They, They go together. And then you add in the third phrase, you get the whole picture. Called out, set aside by the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. A phrase that yet again is going to make us think. A fair bit of thinking in this morning's sermon. Hope you're okay with that. This phrase here, notice that obedience precedes the sprinkling. It comes before. So what's that about? And why does he say sprinkling? Well, this is the language of initiating a covenant, of starting a covenant. And he has one covenant in particular in mind. So much of this letter, as as we'll see, so much of this 1 Peter letter is couched in the language and imagery of the Old Testament. We're going to see this in a very obvious way in the next point. But it's, it's all throughout the letter, and it's right here too. Generically speaking, in Old Testament times, when people would, would decide to make a covenant with one another, they would come, they would meet, they would stand in front of each other face to face, they would discuss the terms, they would state them, then they would exchange vows to keep those terms, and then they would sacrifice an animal to seal the covenant in blood. Literally, the, the phrase for make a covenant is actually cut a covenant. Cut Because what you're saying is, here's what's promised, I vow to do that, and do to me what I'm going to do to this animal if I break that vow. That's how the blood seals the covenant. When one who was superior stood over one and initiated a covenant, the one who was beneath was receiving one of those offers you can't refuse. And so it would be said that the one beneath obeyed the offer. I'm initiating with you, and your role is to say, yes, sir. And you obey that, and then we make the covenant. That's what's being said here in the language of Exodus 24. Exodus 24 is right here, but with a huge twist. Mount Sinai. Exodus 24 is at Mount Sinai. And the making of the covenant between the people and God as God drew these people near to him and then called up some people onto the mountain and Moses read to them the book of the covenant. And the people replied, yes, sir. All that has been spoken, we will do. We will be obedient, they said. And then Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, sprinkled them with it, sealing the covenant. The blood 
Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, is what he said. So we read this verse, and, and it's easy for us to come to it and miss this, but what we have here is a clear echo of something important in the past. There was once a people that God chose and called out from the world up to stand face to face with him, and he called them to obey his law covenant. And they agreed with it and embraced it, and then he sprinkled them with the blood of animals, and that covenant failed. It failed to bring them grace and peace, certainly not in multiplied abundance, not like they needed and wanted. But you, Christian, you are the object of something different, something new and better, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, set aside by the eye-opening, ear-opening, heart-opening sanctification of the Spirit. So key. What puts you in this? The sanctification of the Spirit that opens your eyes and causes you to see differently, that moves in your heart. Like God said in the Old Testament he would do, moves in your heart and changes you so that when you hear the call of the new covenant, by faith you embrace it and are then sprinkled with the blood of a superior sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. He called you to himself, not in the law, but in the gospel. And you became a follower, not of his commandments, but of his lamb. Covered not with the blood of bulls and goats, but covered with the blood of Jesus. All of that, then, is the way that Peter can certainly say with confidence, grace and peace be multiplied to you because God has acted to open up a channel through his election of you to open up a channel in which grace and peace actually do flow. You are at peace with God and an object of his grace. Multiplied, 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 multiplied. I can say that over you because I know it's true, says Peter to the church. All of that was planned by God for you. And then one day of one month of one year in your life, it ran into you. And the God who has known you and has been in pursuit of you since before the foundation of the world caught you and made you his own. This is your great fortune. This is your great fortune by the choice of God. Election is a privilege. It is an unspeakable privilege. It is his love to you. It is marvelous. It is God's grace and mercy creating your identity, our identity. We belong to him by his choice. We are his covenant partners by his choice, his children by his choice. There is incredible security in that. He got us into this on purpose, knowingly. 
And it would pay us great dividends to study election and become very familiar with all of its details and all of its intricacies. The, the really unfortunate piece, you know, I haven't, I haven't yet mentioned what we all know. I haven't yet mentioned that this is in some ways sometimes controversial. I haven't mentioned that because Peter doesn't mention anything controversial. He doesn't argue for it. He just states it. This, this, is, this is doctrine. But I, I know it's controversial, and that's kind of the really unfortunate thing about this is because this is, this is the greatest mark of God's particular love for his people, and unfortunately, we kind of sometimes end up arguing about it. We shouldn't argue about it. We shouldn't argue about it. I don't want to be argumentative about it. I just want to say what's there. This is God's, oh, it's a special particular love for us that would pay us great dividends to study and become familiar with and to understand and to work to be one mind about. However, those are sermons and books and whatnot for another day. Because there's a different sort of question that we should be thinking about here as we kind of turn towards the second observation. Why does Peter start this letter with the doctrine of election? Right out of the gate. Not because he kind of has something interesting he wants to teach us or controversial that he wants to teach us. Not that at all. It's because of how election sets up everything that's coming. It sets it up in two ways. We've talked about to this point, it sets it up in, in the, the realm of precious and dear and sweet. It creates our identity. And our standing in this way, we are his beloved covenant partners, his children. It sets it up and it prepares us to think and to think well and to think clearly about God, the God who is dramatically and powerfully and mightily for me. And it also sets us up in another way and makes us aware, because of this, I am an exile. Hmm. That means that the doctrine of election is sweet and painful. It is precious and really problematic. It's led to a lot of people's pain and death over the centuries. Peter starts here by making something clear. We are exiles because we are God's elect, not because of our ethnicity or our skin color, not because of our economics or our politics, but because God chose us and made us different and set us apart. And that's going to bring us pain, which leads to the second observation. Because of our election, we Christians are the exiles of the dispersion in this world. Because of our election, we Christians are the exiles of the dispersion in this world. Obviously, that phrase comes from verse 1, and it's language used by Greek-speaking Jews to describe Jews who were, for one reason or another, living away from Jerusalem, who were scattered, 
often, usually because of some sort of military enterprise, some sort of an attack, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, etc., had came and carried them away, and they were living as strangers or exiles in a foreign land, often for generations. They were God's people, scattered, exiles everywhere, the dispersed ones, the diaspora, if you've heard that term. That's the Greek word here, the diaspora. And Peter just lays that language directly on all the Christians in all the churches spread over most of what is the modern-day country of Turkey. These five areas that he mentions here, they're Roman provinces in Turkey, and if one were to go from Rome via boat up into the Black Sea, which is the north coast of Turkey, and land at a major port there about in the middle, and then travel via major roads in a clockwise way through most of the country, you'd hit all these provinces in this order. And then you'd end up back in the vicinity of what is modern-day Istanbul. That's a massive area. And there's no way that Peter knew everybody in every place across that whole region. But he did know there were a lot of churches there and there were a lot of Christians there. And the great majority of them were Gentiles. The language of this letter makes that completely clear. He's, he's well aware of that. And yet time and again, these Gentile Christians are placed comfortably right in the middle of passages and promises and pictures from the Old Testament that are clearly about Jews, children of Abraham, in their original context. That's obvious throughout this whole letter. And so we're going to have a lot of opportunity to think about that repeatedly, but this morning we just note it, and note how Peter does this right out of the gate, without any explanation, he just assumes that you Christians, you churches, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, you guys are God's people, the exiles of the dispersion, scattered throughout the world. And frankly, I am too. I'm writing you from Babylon, not Jerusalem. I'm writing you from a foreign land. We're all in this together, most of us living in places where we grew up, were born and raised. And you're in exile there. And that's the piece of information that sets up this book. The other piece, you got the election piece and the exile piece. And I think that's what connects our lives to this book right now. We here are increasingly being made outsiders in this country. Exiles in the land that for many of us is the land of our birth. And that's pretty disorienting for some of us. If, like me, like most of us here, you were born here, you probably grew up here feeling like the whole thing fits together pretty well, hand in glove. This is my land, this is my culture, this is my place, it's my home, it's my faith, which frankly is widely accepted and respected. Maybe not completely understood, but certainly, I mean, even still to this date, every American president has claimed to be a Christian, still to this date. They, they haven't all been, but they've claimed to be, still to this date. It's norm. It's, it's accepted. It's, it's what's here. It's what's right. And now we are beginning to feel a little cast out. I don't really need to describe this for you, probably. It's been there for a while. Noticeable, I think, in any office setting or any family get-together where you might have perhaps mentioned that you're a Christian who believes the Bible, actually what the Bible actually says. 
and believes that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, otherwise we are condemned. If you were to say that, that, that would be awkward, and that would not go super well. We've known that for a little bit of, a t- of time now. You realize in previous generations, that would have been completely known and understood. It wouldn't have been awkward to have said that. But it has been for a little while. But that's not been super ostracizing. We all know we've had another, another trip around the wheel here. Our culture's recent celebration of homosexuality and the very recent, very strident messaging about various transgender theories, all of that's becoming weaponized in ways that the exclusivity of Jesus never was. Something different's going on. I don't know what that's going to be, but it's pretty clear this country and this culture is moving fast away from biblical truth. It could be a whole lot worse, for sure. And in many countries today, it is a whole lot worse. And certainly in the world of 1 Peter, it was a whole lot worse and was getting much, much worse. As Peter writes, we're still looking ahead at Christians turned into candles in the emperor's garden. We're still looking ahead at Christians in the Colosseum. That hasn't happened yet. But it was coming to Peter's world. We're not there. We're not there. But it's important to understand what he says to a people who were there and were getting there because we're going to find something here that is going to help us and and is going to help us to think well about, to face our changing situation and face whatever it is that does come about, which I don't have any idea what that's going to be. Now, it's, I think, important to realize and for me to say out loud here that I am not saying, I'm not personally and I'm not saying that we should be pessimists who shrink back in fear. I'm not saying that. And we certainly shouldn't be people who circle the wagons and start looking for a fight. That's not us. We are not the ones who adopt an us versus them mindset. Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and Peter is going to echo that teaching in his own way but he's going to echo that teaching and tell us the same thing. And we, of course, will always find that mileage varies. The people, the friends, the groups that we are around may present very differently than the wider culture. We are still and will always remain a people called to love those who don't love us. We need to be really clear about that. But while Peter, while Jesus and Peter tell us We're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us and do good to the cities in which we live and be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. They're also going to tell us, and Peter's going to be really clear, don't be surprised, though, at the trial that's coming. As if that's odd and unexpected and shouldn't be. The inevitable earthly consequence of divine election is human, social, governmental estrangement. Say that again. The inevitable 
earthly consequence of divine election is human, social, governmental estrangement. Because God decided to change us in ways that do not align with the world. He made us square pegs in a round hole. He made us that way. We didn't make decisions and actions and adopt theologies and take certain perspectives that then when they become unpopular, we are allowed to change them. That's not how this works. He called us to himself. He moved into our hearts and made us new. He decided to change us because he's building a kingdom with us that is about far more than us. It is about displaying the glory, the truth, the wisdom, and the might of God in the world to forces that look on from outside of the world. We have a part in that, but the story is really about God. He's called us to himself and is using us. He got us into this. Making us different in ways that we notice and that the world notices too. And we are exiles here. We're exiles in Babylon. And Babylon, mileage varies with our own friends and our own neighbors, but as a whole, Babylon has always been intolerant of what is godly and good, right and true, what is Christ-like. And at its core, Babylon is repressive and vicious. Read the book of Revelation. If it did not spare the Lord Jesus himself, it will not spare us who are increasingly made to be like him and to bear his image here. The world as a whole does not love us because he has chosen to love us. But he has overcome the world and is at work to gather us home to himself. He got us into this and he is going to get us out of it. So we can say confidently, like Peter says confidently, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's true in our election and that's true in our exile. That's true because we belong to him. We are exiles and that's going to be hard. We are talking here in, I think, an air-conditioned room on hard plastic chairs, but chairs. We're not sitting on the floor. And I don't have, you know, one inkling of fear that somebody's about to break in right now. But today, in other parts of the world, that's a totally different statement for other Christians. Today. I don't want to, in some hollow way, say that's going to be us. I don't know. I have no idea. But here's what's true, guys. We are God's elect, exiles scattered in the world. 
That means different things for all of us, but we are all in this together under the hand of God. We need to look at that soberly, but not in some sort of crushed and downcast way. Soberly, hope-filled, and Christ-honoring. Because the gospel is true. He's claimed us, and he's going to deliver us and take us home. Yeah, amen, hallelujah. And First Peter is going to help us think about how to do that well. How God helps us to do that well. I love this book. It's one of my favorite books, in fact. And I look forward to what we're going to find in it. Let me pray. Father, I am thankful for your work to chase us down and save us. Surely your goodness and mercy have followed us and caught us and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But meanwhile, while we were still moving towards that home, will you walk with us and escort us and keep us and make us wise and hope-filled and gracious and sober and careful. Continue the work you've begun in us. Build your church and display your name in the world. Thanks for the privilege of being part of it, Lord. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.